Welcome to A World on Fire, an All-Star Squadron podcast. I'm your host, Billy D, and alongside me is my co-host, Herman Lowe. How are you, Herman? Hey, Billy, man. I can't complain as usual. I feel good. Um, today is a monumental occasion because after 20 episodes, this will be episode 21, uh, we finally decided to share the pod space with a guest. <laughs> <laughs> so that's why I'm more than fine. <laughs> And really, it couldn't have been anybody else because we've had correspondence from lots of folks, but uh, one name has stood above the rest, and that is the guest that we have on today. So, uh, without further ado, I'm going to uh, introduce Sir Martin Gray <laughs> to the podcast. Martin, how are you today? I'm very, very well. Thank you, too, for having me on the podcast. I love the show so much, and it's great to be a guest. Thank you. Uh, we should thank you too, <laughs> Martin, because we know you're in high demand when it comes to podcast guest appearances. You're almost like the Tim Price of the UK at this point. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm just good at pestering people. <laughs> but in a very nice way. I mean, you've pointed out some of our errors in the past very diplomatically and uh, we're the better for it so we've taken your comments to heart and uh, yeah that that helped us a lot so we we kind of had to have you on uh, and we're very glad you're here well, i honestly don't mean to be pointing out errors as such it's just you know if, if i have a little bit of information i know that something's a little bit different i, I mean i never it's like in shops i don't complain i give feedback yeah that's what mm -hmm. we need right mr b mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah oh absolutely we love feedback whether it's just feedback or it's uh you know the constructive criticism we love that stuff we got we got no beef with that we we love hearing from people yeah no, you do a fantastic job and honestly no complaints you're wonderful at this thanks martin man we we appreciate it well i mean we uh <laughs> we've been talking to you for a while now not just you know um uh, on comments and feedback that you that we aired on the show, but also we wanted to have you on. And since we're Twitter buddies, you know, we're also sometimes communicating like that. So eventually, it got to the point where I just had to ask you, right? You know, um, off the bat, are you? Do you want to star on the episode? And you said you want to, but you want to do this issue in particular. Is there a reason that this issue stood out to you, or was it just the next one in line that you already read? How did you pick this issue for your you know, a first and pro probably not last guest appearance. Ooh. Well, I always find it interesting when Roy goes straight back to the source material and retells an original All-Star Squadron comic adventure in, sorry, an original All-Star Comics adventure in All-Star Squadron, and to see, you know, how he reinterprets the material, how he places it in the context of the biggest story that he's been weaving, you know, how he, how he approaches the characters, and... 
I think this one, you know, particularly fascinating in some of the choices he makes. But we'll get to that, obviously. Yeah, I agree. I mean, here uh, we're dealing with something Roy teased, I think, as far back as issue 26 in the letter columns in his special note. He teased that he wants to deal with the um, with specifically All Star Comics number twelve, um, you know, from way back in the Golden Age, which dealt. It was at this time in the All Star Squadron's uh, you know history in the comic book, so he kind of had to deal with that if you think about it, uh, just because he wanted to keep the continuity uh, straight in his mind, if not in the minds of the rest of us. And he, I think he also liked this story. I've read in a couple of Alter Ego uh, articles that uh, the Black Dragon Society story, you know, struck a chord with him. So, um, but he wanted to have a poll. And the poll that he offered up in issue 26 was not so much um, whether he wanted to do, whether the readers wanted him to do the story or not. It was more like whether they wanted him to do it full length <laughs> or just, uh, you know, a, a quick few pages. <laughs> So he was going to do it whether or not they <laughs> voted for it or or didn't. <laughs> I think he found a good compromise. I think so, yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. And I would have loved yeah. it if Jerry Ordway got on, but, you know, we got Richard Howell, Howell and Mike Macklin on art, so I can't complain, really. What do you boys think about the uh, art team on this? Billy, we'll let you go first. <laughs> Uh, it's pretty good, you know. I'll, you know, once we get into it, I'll give a couple of little s- tiny smidgens of a uh, nitpick about stuff. But it, overall, uh, I enjoy it. it. It's quite good. Yeah. How do you feel about the art team, Martin? I mean, we got Jerry on the cover at least. Absolutely. You know, I just love the the way you use that that letter tone, the zipper tone, or whatever it's called. Wonderful oh. stuff. But I, I, I really, really did enjoy the art. Yeah. I mean. It's just quite, you know, it's very vibrant. I like the new costumes of the Black Dragon Society members. And there's some a lot of good ex- facial expressions, loads, loads of action, good storytelling. Uh, yeah, I mean, I love Jerry to bits, but, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't feel that we were getting an inferior product at all. Same here, same here. I mean, eventually when Rick Hoberg jumps on the title, um, I felt exactly the same way as a kid reading him. You know, I, I guess it's because I got used to his stuff on... Uh, the Captain Carrot series, which I loved. Um, the only funny animal comic that I loved back then. <laughs> now I've branched out a bit. but So because of uh, Rick Hoberg, I knew his art style a little bit. But funny animals and and then going to humans, it's it's a big departure, really. But I, he, he retained that essential, you know, Hobergness, <laughs> if I can call it that, which made me, you know, <laughs> love the title still. Uh, I mean, I've, I've, I don't know about you, Mart and Billy, but in the past, I've kind of, even if the writing's still really strong, if the art doesn't agree with my, you know, taste, or then I could just drop a title a couple of issues later. I'm so glad that didn't happen here, <laughs> that my inner, you know, art <laughs> critic <laughs> didn't, you know, uh, jump out like a jack-in-the-box and, you know, cancel this series for me. Yeah. Yeah, I think Roy, Roy had a house style in mind for this book, and he, he kept to it. Yeah, oh, perfect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, so before Absolutely we get agree. too deep into it, Billy, I forgot to mention something. You know, um, this is our, Martin, you're our first guest, and, you know, on other podcasts we've done, we normally like to find out a little bit more about, you know, the guest and so forth. And specifically this time around, Martin, since you're all over the Internet with your blog, Too Dangerous for a Girl, 
people probably know you, but um, I personally don't know how you got into All-Star Squadron, and uh, I want to know your origin story there. It's It possibly happened uh, as the comics were released, or am I wrong about that? No, you're, you're spot on there, Herman. I mean, I first came across the GSA in the Justice, Justice League of America team in the early 70s. I think the first one that I bought off the stands was 100 to 100 and 102. And I'd read some of the earlier ones in comics that had been passed down to me. Uh, from then on, I read the, the Justice League, Justice Society team ups every year until we got to the point in the mid 70s at which the All-Star comics came back. Yeah. And from then on, I was just reading the All-Star just All-Star Super Squad stories, the JSA stories. And then we came to the point at which the All-Star Squadron appeared. And that was just heaven, just getting a really intelligent, full-length dose of the JSA in their prime and allied heroes every single month, plus annuals, by a writer who really loved them and artists who were very, very simpatical with Roy's vision. It couldn't have been better. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, I suspected that might be your origin because, you know, um, when you do write in, you can see, right, Billy, through the letters and through the correspondence that uh, you have a real love for this title. And I think there are many people like you out mm. there too. Dr. Ansh, uh, he has a love for this title, but he he uh, is more towards uh, Infinity Inc. At least that's the feeling I've got. Um, but, you know, then, of course, some um, folks like Shag whom you've podcasted with many a time, he also has, you know, uh, uh, an intense, you know, kind of uh, feeling towards this title. And I, I've got a feeling if we didn't do it soon, mm -hmm. then it might have been done on the Justice Society Presents, um, you know, because Shag might have been the one helming that because he's written into us many a time and he's complimented the podcast, but he also says he loved the character. So I don't know why. It's kind of like the whole Swamp Thing, Man Thing situation or the Doom Patrol X-Men situation where something's floating around <laughs> in the in the creative atmosphere, right, Martin and Billy, and then something, you know, happens. Mm -hmm. But you don't exactly know why it happened. Was it a comment that both of you read on Twitter or was it someone on another podcast mentioning something? <laughs> and then you launch a, a, a property that is in need of, of covering and, you know, that's kind of how I felt like I, I even think might've, it might have been you too, Mart, that had something to do with that. Because, you know, last year, a lot of discussions about All-Star Squadron floating around in the Internet, um, you know, especially among the Fire and Water Network guys and their friends and so forth. So, um, yeah, you guys were there first. <laughs> I came a little bit later. No, well, best yes, basically we're we're old. That's our origin. We're old. <laughs> but, but I mean, the, the boys at the Fire and Water Network would have done a fantastic job do, doing you know doing issues, but they wouldn't have been able. They haven't got the room in in the JSA new show to do every issue, and certainly not in detail like you do. The, the All Star Squadron deserves its own show, and you've given it that. This is what we need. Yeah, Billy and I prefer the read, <laughs> read through format, don't we, right, Billy? <laughs> yeah, when I think it was probably, I think we're almost coming up on a year. I think what November maybe it'll yeah. be a year since we released the trailer for this show. And I remember about at least six to eight months before that saying to you, "Hey, uh, how about we do an All Star Squadron podcast?" <laughs> and I knew it yeah. wouldn't uh, take take too much uh, nagging because I knew your love for it. You know, since you were a kid, and then in the last you know decade or so, I had gotten a lot of the issues and was just like wow this is just 
stellar work by Roy Thomas. And then, of course, you know, like you guys said, the artist as well. So uh, I don't know what took us so long to get it off the ground, <laughs> but we eventually did. And yeah, I've been having a blast since. Love it. Yeah, that's right. And But, you know, uh, another thing, uh, Billy and Martin, that you'll probably be aware of once you engage with folks uh, who are comic book fans is you, you know, not, not just doing a podcast or doing a blog, but you get to meet a lot of your real friends out there. That's how Billy and I met. And, you know, that's how we eventually met people like Dr. Ange. And, and now we've met you, Mart. And that's what's fun, too. Because how often as kids did you wonder, like, wow, if I had someone to talk to about this stuff uh, on this level, <laughs> you know, but we didn't have that. But now, you know, through the magic of, mm -hmm. you know, uh, just corresponding and podcasting and so forth, we've, we've got that. We've got folks that are really interested and that can discuss it. So that's why we're glad to have you along, Martin, because you feel even probably more love for this title than we do. And, and no, no, place. no, I, I, we're all on the same level. Don't, you know, <laughs> don't, you know, give yourself more credit there. But it, it is wonderful. You do, you do make I mean, I mean I've, I've now met, I had dinner a couple of years ago with Dr. Ange and Ryan mm. in, in Boston when, uh, you know, on a overnight before a cruise and it's just lovely just meeting people from all over the world so you know watch your back we'll find you at some point <laughs> yeah definitely if you guys want a <laughs> tour of asia you know i'll be your uh, way station why not my partner steven's brother mark he actually lives in thailand so oh right wow. continent. not too far away it's like a three and a half hour flight from from Taiwan, yeah, not not well. That that sounds like a lot if you, <laughs> but it's actually not that bad. <laughs> no, that's not bad. <laughs> Meet up there at some point, and then Billy, you better come along, man. But um, guys, now um, Martin, because you're good at synopses, I've listened to your synopses uh, over many years, and you go into very interesting detail. So that's why we asked you to do the synopsis for this issue, and. Uh, you can do it any which way you want. We really don't care. We just want to listen to a master at work. So um, I'm going to give some details on the issue. And then you can launch into your synopsis. So let's have a look here. All-Star Squadron number 30. Uh, cover dated February 1984. On sale November the 22nd, 1983. And uh, it was $0.75. Cents. Page count 32. Edited by Roy himself. <laughs> And then the cover art, of course, like we mentioned, by Jerry Ordway. I presume he inked it as well. Mm. And uh, title, Day of the Black Dragon. And uh, writer Roy Thomas, artist Mike Macklin. And then we've also got Richard Howell coming on later. Inked by Sam De La Rosa, lettered by David Cody Weiss, and colored by Gene D'Angelo. All right, that covers the, the technical specs and so forth. Martin, what do you have for us for your synopsis? We begin in the Perisphere, the new HQ of the All-Star Squadron. Chairwoman Liberty Bell is burning the midnight oil when Wonder Woman drops in, unannounced. Libby tells Diana that she's doing some prep work for the first annual general meeting of the team. As Wonder Woman tidies the robot out of the way, Libby says she's still tickled that despite her immense power, Wonder Woman is the Justice Society of America's secretary. The amazing Amazon replies that she doesn't mind. Heck, she can write faster than the guys can type. In fact, she's popped in right now to record the JSA's latest exploits. The two heroines swap real names, then turn to their separate business. We, the readers, are privy to Diana's notes. 
The GSA mission began on February the 16th, 1942, at the team's meeting room in the Smithsonian. Present are Wonder Woman, Hawkman, Sandman, Atom, Johnny Thunder, Starman, The Spectre, and Doctors Fate and Midnight. Hawkman tells his colleagues that the FBI wants them to break up any branches of Japan's insidious Black Dragon Society operating on American soil. The team's new liaison, Major McNichols, arrives to tell them more. Eight top US scientists have been overcome and had their inventions stolen, weapons which, altogether now, could change the course of the war. They don't know the Black Dragons are definitely behind the boffin bashing and have no proof Japanese Americans are involved, but they can't be too sure. The weapons must be recovered. Eight scientists, nine heroes, so one GSA will be able to stay back at base in case any other missions come up, step forward and back Wonder Woman. As everyone leaves, Diana counsels that they must remember that not every Japanese American is a traitor. First to have an adventure is Hawkman, who finds a bunch of BDSs guarding one of the stolen inventions, a giant flying propeller with razor-sharp blades, capable of slicing through skyscrapers. Hawkman puts up a terrific fight, but a stray bullet to the temple allows the spies to tie him to the giant propeller, for daring to strike one of his Imperial Majesty's faithful black dragons. <laughs> but they've underestimated the flyboy's strength, and as the strange craft rises and centrifugal force builds, Hawkman frees himself. He's thrown off the craft and across the countryside, while the prop carries on to the Bronx, intending to topple buildings. Hawkman catches up to it in time to see a bomb drop, but manages to catch the thing and throw it into the East River just before it explodes. The furious PDS leader starts pursuing the winged wonder in the machine, but our hero manages to get onto it without being carved up and beats up the crew. He throws them out, making sure they're wearing parachutes, and says, I've called a flock of my duck hawks to see you all land in an army and camp. <laughs> Hawkman closes the case by using the propeller to slice the BDS's Castle HQ to stony ribbons. Diana then gives us quick recaps of other GSA members' encounters with the BDS. Dr. Fate crushes an experimental flamethrowing tank. Dr. Midnight and Hooty the Owl stymie a death ray. The Spectre takes on a torpedo to rescue an inventor and his plans for an amazing rocket bomb. Starman overpowers a giant dirigible. The Sandman isn't at all perturbed by a modern twist on Greek fire. And, in San Francisco, the Atom is on the trail of a mighty explosive, a single grain of which could flatten a warship. He wanders through the deserted streets, sympathising with the Japanese-Americans who keep themselves to themselves since the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbour two months previously. And yet he wonders if the little Tokyos of the Pacific Northwest are crawling with spies. A local young man, Mori Fushido, approaches the atom and after a misunderstanding, that is, a minor tussle, explains that the BDS are operating from a local restaurant, but there's not a Japanese-American sympathiser in the lot. The spies are all, he says, fresh off the boat. Berating the atom for calling him a Jap, Mori refuses to be sidelined. This is his fight too, and he wants to show that the Japanese people on American soil are as loyal as anybody else, and together... Atom and Mori rout the BDS bad guys. Elsewhere, Johnny Thunder finds himself at the central headquarters of the Black Dragon Society. Without thinking about how the Thunderbolt takes every command literally, he'd wish that he could get to the bottom of things. And then he sends his genie off to stop the stolen metal dissolver that he's heard about, without first asking to be saved from the BDS thugs. Happily, 
Thunderbolt hears Johnny make an almost wish that he could do with the JSA being there to help him and bends the rules. The Justice Battalion, as the JSA were then, appear. The boys bash the baddies and express hope that that's the end of the BDS in the US forever. Atten points out that if they do return, they won't get much support from the Isai and the Nisai. Back in the now, Diana finishes her notes and expresses her worry about the rising tide of anti-Japanese American feeling. Libby says, come on, it's not that bad. The story closes on an awful note of foreboding as a reluctant President Roosevelt, amid fears of an attack on the US mainland from Japan, signs the executive order that will send 100,000 persons of Japanese ancestry living in the US to hastily erected internment camps. Wow, impressive, Martin. Did you do all of that in one mm. breath? <laughs> no, no, no worries. I mean, you've had a lot of practice doing this, Martin. I mean, uh, I'm impressed. Mm -hmm. I like the, the bit of po poetry you inserted there, like slicing the stone tower to stony ribbons. <laughs> that was a good part. <laughs> <laughs> mm, great stuff. Yeah, I love, I made a little faux pas earlier. I do not have any nitpicks about the cover. The cover's awesome. I was uh, thinking about the first splash page there, so... Oh, apologies about that <laughs> the interiors okay we'll we'll get into that yeah. but um you know um mm -hmm. uh, i do think though that uh, we quickly have to insert a quick earth prime archive here this is not regarding mm. the interment of the uh, japanese americans that'll come later as our listeners might suspect uh, since that's very important in this uh, era but this is actually concerning the black dragon society uh, now there was an actual black dragon society and they were also known as the Amur River Society, and they were a paramilitary ultranationalist uh, group in Japan. And uh, listeners, or or I think uh, f fans of the Fire and Water uh, Network's Film and Water podcast might know them from, I think, when Clinton Robinson starred with, it was either Rob or Shaq, I can't remember, when they discussed the movie Bloodsport. Because the founders of that tournament, the, the Kumite, were the were the same. They were the Kokurukai, the Black Dragon Society, who sponsored that blood sport tournament. Wow! <laughs> wow! That's them. Yeah, that's them. So when I was a kid, I didn't make this connection, but I think it was some when when I was a teenager and rereading these old issues, and you know, I had blood sport fresh in my mind. That's when I'm like, wait a minute, the Black Dragon Society. Uh, and and then I went back and I I did some research pre-internet I you know, and then it turned up and I was like no way my mind is blown. <laughs> That's wild. <laughs> it's crazy, but you know, um, of course, the fictional Black Dragon Society was based off of these guys because um, back then in the 1940s they were considered to be fictional the the actual society as well. So they were used much like Fu Manchu was used uh, was based off of them some parts of Fu Manchu's empire in the sex romer novels of the time uh, they were used in, in in other works of fiction as well as this evil society operating behind the scenes and then they mm -hmm. were eventually uh, by some conspiracy theorists in the early 1940s 40s reappropriated as a type of fifth column um, you know uh, a society sowing discord among the Japanese Americans um, shaming them for not doing more for their country of their, you know, ancestors, Japan in this case, of course. So, um, uh, but it well, there were was no connection between them and the actual Black Dragon Society. In fact, the real Black Dragon Society might have been defunct 
uh, as far back as the the mid 1920s uh, you know, when Japan became in, uh, increasingly uh, imperialist and uh, militaristic. So they wouldn't have uh, allowed any, uh, you know, societies to challenge the, the might of the government and the emperor. But um, interesting that there was an actual Black Dragon society and then it's popped up in, in movies and fiction over the years. That's the end <laughs> of the first Earth Prime archive. <laughs> Mart, what do you think about that? <laughs> That's fascinating. I've never, I've never heard. Of that. I don't know the film Blood, Blood Sport at all. The only Blood Sport I know is, you know, fox hunting and a Superman villain. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me tell you something, Mark. You're not missing much. Um, in the '80s and early '90s, that guy in those films were cool, and now you watch them and you're just like, first of all, the guy that was in the movie is a complete jackass. He was a coke addict and a womanizer. So <laughs> I don't look oh. back on him and on him like, oh, what a great guy. <laughs> Billy's talking about John John Claude Van Damme here, uh, but listen, I think yeah. before this gets out of hand and before I sever our friendship permanently, I'm gonna say, "Bite your tongue, Mister B." That movie is an uh, it's a treasure of modern cinema. <laughs> I, I forgot you wanted to be Jean Claude when you grow up. Sorry. <laughs> it's on I'll find it. <laughs> uh, Martin, yeah, just uh, take it with a hefty grain of salt because, but, but Clinton Robinson and I, we have bonded over our love of Bloodsport and the Black Dragon Society. We, we, we are honorary members at this point in time. <laughs> anyway, so um, interesting aside there. Got nothing to do with All Star Squadron, but hey, it was in the 80s, so it might have a connection. Mm -hmm. Who knows? Mm -hmm. but um now let's get into the story okay so the cover mm -hmm. love the cover but um, oh, yeah. we've already gushed over jerry ordway being infallible so um I, i'm gonna give you guys one chance is there anything else you want to say about the cover or are we just gonna agree that it's perfect i would say with the jsa being into the picture to save johnny from the Black Dragon Society leader and his magic sword. Do you think they really are going to save him, or are they wondering whether they should bother saving him? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm I'm thinking the Spectre shouldn't have. Uh, well, in the interiors, we'll see later. He, you know, uh, he did want something to happen to Johnny Thunder because where, where he could have completely evaporated the assailant, he just, you know, opted to evaporate the knife. <laughs> So I think there's some, some, you know, desire among the members to get rid of this, uh, you know, this uh, uh, cancerous lesion on their squad. Oh. <laughs> Poor Johnny. Uh, but no, a, a great cover. And I, I take your comment to heart, Mart. I, I'm sure that uh, they were probably transported by the T-Bolt against their will. And like, should we or shouldn't we? <laughs> Mm -hmm. do, you, do you notice the difference between the cover and what actually happens inside in the scene the members wonder woman isn't that that's the the, yep. the difference yeah mm -hmm. yes also sexist calls he wants the jsa there where's wonder woman yes yeah exactly i mean the fact that they left her behind you know to hold the fort as it were is a very golden age trope uh, for the jsa but here it's explained that, you know, they do need someone to, you know, in case for communication purposes, <laughs> maybe. But I mean, come on, I would have replaced one of the, the lesser powered members with Wonder Woman and let them stay behind. That isn't, isn't that just smart? <laughs> you know, 
Maybe Al. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Oh, shame. No, let's not go there. <laughs> <laughs> he already has a complex. <laughs> yeah, poor Al. But that's a good a good thing to point out. You know, I didn't mention, uh, think about it until you just mentioned now, Mart, but it's very prominent. Wonder Woman's right there. And I think she was a big draw at this point in time, too, uh, for the mm-hmm. comic itself, for the All-Star Squadron, because she had been sort of uh, fixing what they, the mistakes that Gardner Fo- Gardner Fox and the other creators of the JSA did in the 1940s by not giving her a more prominent role. And of course, they wouldn't consider it a mistake, but you know, with our modern sensibilities, it definitely was because she was already popular back then. If they had put her into more stories, you know, in the golden age, it, I, I think it could have boosted sales, uh, especially among the, you know, um, the female persuasion. Because the other day I read something when I read some uh, an online article about H.G. Peters, you know, the artist of, of Wonder Woman. Um, you know, someone had done some research. I, I'll try to find it and be more specific about where you can read up on it. Um, and they said that, you know, uh, 40% of the readership uh, at the time uh, were female. And of course, the 60% uh, male were there for the titillation and for the bondage and whatever. But who cares? I mean, <laughs> a lot of girls were reading Wonder Woman in the 40s. And of course, you know, they could have transferred that to the JSA's, you know, popularity among they probably did have some some female readers, but you know, Wonder Woman definitely wasn't prominently featured, and no female characters were. So I'm glad Roy, you know, keeps addressing that, and he'll keep rubbing the faces of the Golden Age writers in this <laughs> every time he he puts Wonder Woman in the foreground. So good on Roy there. Yeah, have you any idea why the Golden Age writers like like Gardner Fox? Wouldn't have made Wonder Woman more prominent because obviously she had she had her own comic her own comic book. She you know she started in Sensation Comics. She was in Comics Cavalcade, mm. and you know she, obviously she was popular enough that they put her in the book. So why on earth didn't they use her a bit more? I I mean Billy, we've always wanted to ask Jennifer DeRoss a couple of questions. Mm-hmm. I think we should add this to the list because I couldn't find it in any interview or any article written by Gardner Fox, and I was interested uh, because I. I had this idea, you know, in my mind that he was, when I first started to, to, to read him, that he was sexist, but actually he wasn't. He was a, you know, he was a, a, a very nice man towards women and, you know, in, in his private life. It's just on the comic book page, I think there might have been a, a, an editorial mandate that, that said that these titles should be separate. You know, Wonder Woman is in her own universe, and if you want to use her, that's fine, but, um, you know, you can't you know, deal, uh, you can't uh, threaten the masculinity of the rest of the members. So I, I, that's just my own theory. This is not from reading anything, but it, it might have been a separate editor or something that had a say. So Yeah, you, know, you could be right there. Yeah. I, I wouldn't be surprised if that's what it was. You know, just some uh, backwards thinking. Yeah, he might have been a misogynist or something. Who knows? I mean, there were many of them. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. So uh, now the cover, being flawless as it is, has a, uh, an opening splash page. But Billy, you can uh, express some concerns about some of the art uh, what, uh, from the splash page specifically on the first page. Is that it? Or Yeah, really. That's, that's really the only page. But um, Wonder Woman's face looks very off to me. I, I don't know what it is about it. It just I don't know if her head and face are too small and she has these arms that, and legs that look like five feet long. It's just she looks. Wonder Woman looks a little off to me. Uh, Liberty Bell looks great. 
Okay, is that Robot Man or napping over there, or is no, that that robot they Electro. found in the Perisphere? <laughs> yeah, that's oh, Electro. <laughs> right. <laughs> but everything else looks absolutely perfect and spot on. But Wonder Woman to me looks a bit off. What do you think about that, Mart? I don't know. I don't. I don't feel. I mean, I feel that yeah, she's drawn uh, differently than we've seen her before. But um, I don't mind. Uh, what do you think, Mart? Now that Billy has pointed it out, I can't unsee it. But look, I mean, generally, I'm just looking at the whole page where I'm sort of z. I mean, I'm more likely to zero in on the the pen, the pens, and the cup and the lab, and think, what lovely detail. Mm. <laughs> I just, I just get the overpowering presence of the heroes. But I, I do see your point, Billy. There, yeah, but it doesn't spoil it for me. And then I thought to myself, too, is she Greek or is she Spanish? She flies in with Ola. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> that was her thing, though, wasn't it? All the time. Hold of this, hold of that. Hold a lot of holders. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, this 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 page, though, I, I liked it. I, I enjoyed uh, the discombobulation effect, <laughs> if you can call it that, of Liberty Bell suddenly being surprised by... One of, you know, the all-stars just mm -hmm. dropping in unannounced like that. Because apparently, they, you know, Johnny Quick can phase through, you know, the perisphere. So why should she be surprised if someone just drops in unannounced? <laughs> you know, she should be used to it with Johnny <laughs> Quick, you know, being rude all the time and just uh, invading her personal space <laughs> every time he gets the chance. Mm -hmm. But um, then we open with a bit of a quote again here, right, um, by... Uh, which Roy inserted, he says, the quote is from mm -hmm. the Congressman John Rankin, a reprehensible human, I'm sure, uh, from a congressional record here from December the 15th, 1941. He says, I'm for catching every Japanese in America, Alaska, and Hawaii now, and putting them in concentration camps. So very direct, very, you know, reprehensible, Eesh. yeah, bigot of a senator or congressman there. But mm, I don't yeah, know... Very. I don't Very know about you guys, but jerk reaction, yeah. Yeah, I didn't see this. I mean, when I was young and read this comic, possibly for the first time or the half dozenth time, I don't know when. You know, I can't remember the first time I read it, but obviously, eventually, I I happened upon this quote during my rereading, and I was not. I I thought this was incongruous. Why is this quote in this issue? Until you reach the end, where you see him mm -hmm. sign the declaration, or when you know the atom teams up with uh, uh, American, a uh, Japanese Mori. American. Mm, Mori. So, um, yeah, yeah, this was a, a bit of a disturbing thing for me, you know, uh, growing up in uh, apartheid South Africa. I also, you know, because uh, this this was very real once I realized what, what, what this issue was sort of criticizing. Um, so, mm -hmm. guys, let's get into the rest of the tale. Um, some great moments here between Liberty Bell and Wonder Woman, I'm sure. You want, want to speak on that. Liberty Bell gets her to do some heavy labor. <laughs> There on the second page. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> helping with the decorating. I, I wish they'd sort of, you know, given that she's talking about how she's, you know, she's been revamping the, the, the meeting rooms a little bit. I wish we maybe had, you know, room for half page just to show us what, you know, what it looked like. I love head, you know, pictures of headquarters and things. And I just, I just wish we had more than that. But I do like that the ladies swap their names, you know, on the way to getting a friendship going. Yeah, need that. That's right. Yeah, that was good. I like that. That's a good touch there by Roy. Yeah, this seems to be the first time that they've really um, interacted in a social setting. It might not be, but, you know, um, at least that I've seen on the page, 
they've met, but I don't think they've had time to do these, you know, little pleasantries and these mundane things. And I always like it when superheroes are involved in mundane matters for a couple of pages, <laughs> you know, just to show their human side a little. <laughs> and um, here we see, you know, Liberty Bell and, and her engaging in some banter and, and laughing at each other and um, you know, and then she laughs at the fact that the boys don't use her more, you know, that she's just a secretary. And then Wonder Woman just says, well, I mean, it makes sense because I'm the fastest writer of the bunch. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I don't care how hard Roy is trying to make sense and make Wonder Woman seem gracious. The character of Wonder Woman, you know, she's come to man's world to make a difference. She's she's not come to man's world to be a stenographer when in her, her fighting togs. Ridiculous. <laughs> Exactly, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, definitely agree. <laughs> definitely agreed on that one, yeah. The, the real Wonder Woman wouldn't stand for it. Yeah, and Billy, yeah. now that you've got me looking closely at their faces, I'm looking at Liberty Bell in the third panel, laughing. And it yeah. doesn't look good. doesn't look good. Mm -mm. Yeah, her that panel and the panel uh, across from it as well. And Diana, you know, she looks a little different there. I, I don't know. Yeah. It's just, I don't know if it was just those two, because, I mean... The rest of the characters, I never thought during the the rest of it, maybe because they're more action scenes and stuff like that. It's not like zoomed in on their face or whatever. But yeah, well, it's, it's a little off. But that's like the the top panel on the right hand side. Bell looks great there. Like that's a great panel of her face there. Yeah, very sexy for Definitely, definitely. I don't have a problem as much as you guys, it seems. But I do have a little bit of a problem with the bottom panel. Um, of page two where Wonder Woman is given the notebook her face there is not consistent with the rest of the faces on the page uh, you know so mm -hmm. I think um, what was it Richard Howell doing this part of the um, or was it Mike Macklin oh I think it was Mike Macklin right um, I think Macklin mm -hmm. yeah he, yeah he had a little bit of trouble I think uh, you know keeping the face is consistent, maybe. Consistency. Yeah, that's that's yeah. tough. You know, I've I've read a couple of interviews with artists saying that when they first, uh, you know, learn to draw a character, uh, you know, they gotta have to kind of draw many angles to the face and so forth, so that you become used to it. Uh, you know, it's it's it, it's tough. I mean, just think of us as non-artists. I mean, I don't know about your drawing skills, Martin and Billy, but <laughs> mine's mine's not that great. I can make a something look the same you know twice in a row <laughs> you know much less a face <laughs> given that there's two artists though, i mean i think there may have been a deadline crunch and probably boys did just a wonderful job considering yeah that's probably true yeah because they were well, yeah yeah fill in yeah, for yeah and then you go across and, yeah and then you go across to the next page though and there's that two-thirds you know splash there the jsa sitting there at the table and that looks fantastic i love that yeah yeah, I mean, look at look at Doctor Fate's body language. He's just having such a good time now that he's been denabooed. <laughs> denabooed sounds like being dewormed. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. And the and the specter standing there like a zombie. Look at him. <laughs> yeah, man, he looks like the Walking Dead, which he probably literally is. <laughs> yeah, like Simon Garth. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Give, yeah. Given the given the boy used to explain everything, I realised it. Hawkman in the original story, he's also reading from a scroll. Was it? Did Roy ever explain why they would stand there reading scrolls, or was it just because Hawkman was an archaeologist type and he liked scrolls? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, yeah. He, he, That's he would, weird. Yeah. He wouldn't accept any correspondence from the government if they didn't first put it on ancient papyrus. 
Yeah, he had his, uh, you know, look and uh, reputation to maintain as, uh, and he had to keep rubbing, uh, you know, our faces in it that he's from, you know, an Egyptian, <laughs> you know, origin. But uh, no, I love the fact that it's a scroll. I wonder why. Yeah, it's true. I mean, uh, that is something I wouldn't have noticed if I didn't talk to you guys right now. Very, very you know, salient point that you guys made there. Wow. Um, and then, you know, you get to uh, the next page after the meeting where Hawkman, you know, uh, just reminds us what we already knew that the Justice Society were hanging around waiting for the government to give them the go ahead to take down the Black Dragon Society. So they were basically waiting on intel. Uh, it finally happens mm -hmm. on the next page, page four. And then um, it's uh, Major McNichols, you know, the liaison with the government. He walks in, he tells them about the, the nefarious plan. And I kind of this is this is the typical kind of supervillain plan, and and we've seen this before. We've seen it, you know, in the in the very first uh, story arc, um, the long form story arc of All Star Squadron, where um, you know the alien showed up, and there were a couple of people involved there, uh, scientists kidnapped, <laughs> you know, by an old Hulkman villain, mm -hmm. right, uh, Doctor Haster, mm -hmm. and now we see it again. There's but but this obviously taken from the Golden Age, so this story came first. Um, or it might not have even because it seemed that a lot of storylines revolved around kidnapping scientists and using them for, you know, uh, their uh, expertise in building weapons. <laughs> so everybody said Tony Stark mm -hmm. back then. <laughs> no, I wanted to say, um, you know, the, this time around it's eight, you know, and, and that sort of, uh, you know, it's very convenient because there are eight members of the JSA who are going to go off on eight different missions. <laughs> so... Very, very well. There's not nine if you count, you know, Wonder Woman, but we know she's going to stay behind. So there's eight kidnapped scientists, eight members of the JSA, and uh, a little bit too convenient uh, from from Gardner Fox there from the original tale. Uh, so Martin, yeah. yeah, what do what do you think about that? <laughs> I just think, I mean, I mean, the, the Black Dragon Society. I mean, the main business bashing people with hammers on the page, but I, I like I like the change. In the original, in the original tale, I mean, I don't know how much we're meant to be comparing and contrasting, so I apologise if I'm too hung up on the original tale as well. But uh, I like seeing what, seeing how Roy's instructed the artist to make differences, and the fact that they're, you know they're now in the original tale, the guys, Black Dragon Society, were pretty much just in, I think, purple or something jumpsuits or whatever, and now they're in these amazing costumes with and the masks are like, wait, they're somewhat they're like a bit like the the, uh, the Golden Age heroine, I think, from Harvey Comics, the black cat masks. And they're standing there with the guy, with the leader in this amazing costume with a, with, with like a Hawkman style symbol on the chest, and he's looks like he's leading him in a contemporary dance session. <laughs> <laughs> I really like. That. I do like. It. Yeah, it does look wild. <laughs> yeah, it looks great. Oh yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I think Macklin, if it is Macklin, has done a wonderful job with the, the dragon symbol behind. But you wonder, because Roy, Roy, you know, well, sorry, the original, right, with Gardner Fox's setup, they've got these eight scientists. And I know they had no continuity back then, but Roy, Roy obviously is into continuity big time. And at the end of the issue, you know, they rescued the scientists, they rescued, you know, the uh, amazing inventions and things. And you think, well, they're going to change the course of the war. The war will be ended within a month with all these flying propellers and death rays and things, but obviously never heard of again. Yeah, exactly. That's the strange thing, right, Billy? Mm -hmm. Do you agree? Like, um, at the yeah. end, they, they save the scientists and their inventions, and then we're left sometimes with the line saying that, uh, you know, um, and they shall. <laughs> you know, because Hawkman's thought bubble might be something like, <laughs> you know, 
Um, uh, you know, don't know if our boys will perfect this prop in time, you know, uh, but at least this will give them a chance to try. And then the, the narration caption reads, and they shall. No, they shall not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So That's wild. It's pretty funny that Martin, you should mention that, yeah, because. Mm -hmm. um, but it's also mm -hmm. it's also interesting, you know, that um, this time around it seemed that Garner Fox uh, went pretty big, you know, and uh, you know that they had these eight doomsday devices. Really, if you think about it, um, and each JSA member, they always do that in the old Golden Age. They they manage to to uh, you know solve the mystery and um, you know beat up the bad guys and, and return home and then we never hear from it again now this must have been like uh, candy for Roy but he probably had to restrain himself here because <laughs> he probably wanted to write an issue each for for one of these stories but yeah, yeah. he couldn't he couldn't so it, it must have been tough for him to restrain himself for just 32 pages yeah he, he limits mm -hmm. himself to his favorite Hawkman and I think he has to have Atom in there because that's you know at the, at the heart of the issue, the, the treatment of the Japanese Americans. That's right, that's right. He picked the right storylines yeah. to highlight, you're right. And then also he had to have the Johnny Thunder episode in there because even in the original All-Star Comics 12, you see that's how the comic ends, you know, with Johnny Thunder. So um, Roy might not have, I don't know his feelings towards Johnny Thunder. I can't remember ever reading that he did not like the character. Uh, I'm pretty sure he might have some sentimental feelings for all of these Golden Age characters. So. I, I've never heard him say he doesn't oh, yeah. like one Golden Age character, but um, you know, uh, just because we don't like him, we're projecting you know our dislike of Johnny Thunder <laughs> on him. Actually, if you I have... like him, I... oh, sorry, Mart, you like Johnny Thunder? Yes, I don't get why modern, modern readers don't like. I mean, you know, he's he's a bit of a putz, and you know, you think. Well, you don't think why is he on the team? He's on the team because he's got an all-powerful genie that he controls, or but. He's, he's just a bit of fun. He's, you know, he's a bit. He's, a, I mean, he's a heck of a lot more useful than someone like our man. Ooh, ouch, 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 ouch. <laughs> Power wise, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, I love the our man uh, very much, but okay, it makes sense if you look at Johnny Thunder's T Bolt, you know, about his, his power. It's kind of almost specter like in its, uh, you know, powers. So I guess you're right. I mean, he for the longest time he provided their sole mode of transportation. You know, um, uh, if you yeah. think about it, how many old golden ish, uh, uh, you know age JSA issues? Not many, but uh, at least more than two, where you see the Thunderbolt, you know, carrying the entire JSA roster on its back. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So I I can see where you're coming from, Martin. I just don't uh, like the the kind of snapper car Rick Jones esque. Uh, I'm not saying Jimmy Olsen. He's not really a Jimmy Olsen like character, even though he's visually similar. <laughs> but um, you know, he's he's there for a laugh, and though sometimes that works. You know, for me, you know, the reason why I don't like Johnny Thunder is because some JLA issues in the '80s were written with him, you know, showing the, the ugly side of Johnny Thunder, where he's uh, bitter because of the Black Canary breakup. And, uh, um, you know, so that was my first impression of the character. And then when I read him, you know, way back when, it, you know, he was different, written differently. You know, for instance, in All-Star Squadron, he's more of a laugh-a-minute kind of guy. But um, yeah. I, I, I couldn't disassociate that from my first impression with him being this bitter old man <laughs> i don't know if you know the issues i'm referencing but it was <laughs> during the yeah, black canary yeah you know right the origin yeah, i came across him when he was just this this the simple funny guy and he was you know 
I just I, I think I automatically liked him because he looked like Silver Age Barry Allen. Ooh, that's a yeah, true. He does, right, Billy? Mm-hmm. Yeah, from yeah. from the showcase yeah, days, um, and uh, probably later on too. If he's not in a lab coat, Barry Allen was in a little uh, in a suit and a bow tie sometimes with Iris mm-hmm. on on the town. Yeah, yeah. I never mm-hmm. equated them with each other, but they're very visually very similar. Blonde, yeah. Okay, interesting. Very interesting. Now we might have to reassess our opinion about his visuals, but uh, <laughs> I'm still the, the jury's still out on. <laughs> You know whether he's he's a good character, but you know um he's very uh, his T-ball definitely makes him one of the most powerful members actually yeah so uh, useful Absolutely. but and and in fact he's the MVP of this issue would you guys agree because he's the one who takes down the leader really and and brings the entire Justice Society along for the ride just with a wish. Well, is it a wish? I mean, the T-Bolt was breaking the rules there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I like when they're uh, getting ready to head out after the Major is talking to them. And he says, the Major says to them about, you know, I'm glad to see you JSAers are, you know, back at full strength after getting banged up by that, fighting that three-eyed and the Spectre. His name was Kulak. Yeah. <laughs> I think yeah, it might yeah, be the yeah. only line. <laughs> How dare you not remember one of my main villain's names? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's I funny. Think, I think my, my favorite sorry. So my, I think my favorite funny line of the issue is when, when Hawkman has been you know has been captured by the leader of the Black Dragon Society who's in the giant propeller and Hawkman wakes up and he goes, Holy Hannah and then the guy goes <laughs> If this Hannah, the venerable ancestor of your American, your oath was well spoken. <laughs> I mean, that's that's true. I mean, you'd expect Hawkman to say something like "by Osiris" or something, or "by Set," but yeah, now he goes with the Jonah Hex favorite, Holy Hannah, <laughs> and the Japanese guy totally doesn't get it. <laughs> Oh, that's a great that's a great line by Roy. You know, Roy was actually pretty good with the humor every now and then. Sometimes he tried too hard, but you know, every now and then it works. What do you guys think? Overall, uh, when Roy tried to do humor, Billy, did I mean? Did, oh, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He, he, like you said, every once in a while, I think it's a little over the top, but for the most part, I think he gets it right. Yeah. I do. Yeah. I mean, we've we've read some funny parts before where he, you know, but but sometimes he doesn't want to let go of a bone, like with the atom, uh, you know, constantly uh, degrading himself and his abilities. That that was funny in, in, at first a little bit, but now it's just, I mean, let it go. Oh yeah. But with other things, yeah, yeah. you know, where two new characters meet, uh, you know, sometimes or just an old character he loves to write, uh, getting the chance for a quip or a one-liner, it it kind of works. Uh, now, speaking about one-liners, we'll have a whole page full of them later when it's JSA versus the <laughs> BDS uh, in, in one single splash panel. But I, I say it's more hit, mm-hmm. more misses than hits on, the, on those one-liners. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. But now, guys... Roy knows what he's doing. Roy learned at the foot of Stan, so he, he knows the one-liners. Yeah, true, mm-hmm. true. Stan uh, was his uh, mentor. So, yeah, he must have. That's that's where it comes from, the alliteration and the one-liners. <laughs> <laughs> and we, uh, he got to go completely crazy with puns in Zoo Crew, but he, uh, he's quite restrained. Yeah, if you compare it to the Zoo Crew and other things that he might have done. I even find that the Invaders uh, were 
filled with more puns and uh, not forced humor, but I'd say Roy was trying to deliberately be funny, uh, more so than in All-Star Squadron. But then some issues of the Invaders would be super serious again. So, you know, I think he found a nice balance with All-Star Squadron. So the Invaders might have been his trial run for, you know, during the, the mid-70s for Marvel. Uh, then, you know, his trial run for All-Star Squadron. And and I think he, he came out the better for it. Um, I think it's tough to write, you know, a, a series like this. I mean, in his mind, it might, might have been fine. But, you know, when he actually did tackle the Invaders, I mean, the Invaders is full of, uh, you know, lot, lots of, uh, you know, faux pas and um, things and uh, writing-wise that I could identify more easily than All-Star Squadron. The only thing that still comes with us from those days is, of course, Roy's love of exposition. <laughs> he didn't tone that down. <laughs> <laughs> but I think plot-wise and dialogue-wise, he's improved. So, guys, now, um, the, the Hawkman issues, uh, the, the story, I should say, I meant the story, is very important. It's got these great moments, and it's also got Hawkman showing his chops in terms of strength and, and skill and survivability. But there's one part that I kind of have to take issue with. They mentioned that the gyrations of this uh, spinning prop that can level cities, it, it's a thousand, you know, rotations per second. Right. So Whoa. now, now, wow. get, now get this. That's that's what they said. And then they tie Hawkman to one of the blades <laughs> and he survives for a couple of hundreds of thousands of rotations. If you if you factor in maybe what, 10 seconds. Right. <laughs> so yeah. he survives that. Whoa. His, e oh, his equilibrium would be insane. He wouldn't even be able to stare straight. <laughs> <laughs> it would. would we now we now know from modern DC comics that Nth Metal can do anything. Ah, true, true. Yeah, <laughs> there we you go. Death, <laughs> death Metal. So you know, death defying metal. It could easily be that. <laughs> yeah, I, I just love it. I think the giant propeller is my favorite of all the all the weapons that's mentioned because obviously we don't see them all in this particular issue. But I mean, it's, it must be related to the war wheel from Black Hawks and have come straight from that the Acme factory in Roadrunner. Yes, <laughs> he must have plumbed some of those <laughs> those secret weapons uh, from from Wiley e. Coyotes, <laughs> you know, uh, credit, with with his credit that he has at Acme. <laughs> oh man, but mm -hmm. guys, now think about this: uh, Hawkman, he does not appreciate the Japanese uh, architects and engineers building a castle on American soil. <laughs> he just, even though he defeated <laughs> he defeated the entirety of the Black Dragons and his him and his Duck Hawks. He still mows down the castle <laughs> and then wonders if the, the scientists will ever perfect this, you know, uh, spinning, uh, this gyrating weapon. Yes, they've perfected it. You've just proved its effectiveness. <laughs> it's just torn down this Japanese <laughs> castle for, for no reason. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I took it that you tore down the castle because it was, you know, the headquarters of bad guys and you just wanted it off the face of the planet, not that you necessarily objected to them building it building no, as no. european side i mean i could see that if he was a bit of a racist and didn't like actual if they built it as a japanese architecture yes, yes. i think it was just like <laughs> he ripped up any villain's headquarters i think so too no i, I feel like why why couldn't the all-star squadron take over and that be their headquarters <laughs> <laughs> hey don't knock the perisphere and the trilon man no um uh, i i need to apologize to you guys i was just being facetious there I think Hawkman just wanted to test this baby out, really. <laughs> I mean, wouldn't you want to? And he did. 
wow, that looked like fun, you know, riding on mm. something like that, tearing down mm -hmm. something like that. So uh, I don't think we need to speak too much about the rest of the small what single panel vignettes here, you know, containing the rest of the, the All-Stars. I mean, I like the fact that Dr. Fate always, even in the brainwave issue, he always seems to confront something that um, is geared towards his lungs, you know, his only point of vulnerability. <laughs> I mean, you know, there it was a gas bomb <laughs> employed by the Japanese. Here it's a tank that can burn away his oxygen, a flamethrowing tank. But um, the death ray seemed to be the most dangerous weapon, and they, they sent Dr. Midnight to take out the death ray. So, ooh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, lo I, love his, I love his line there, though. That's like the best line ever. I'm a doctor too, friend, and we'll see how you like my medicine. <laughs> That's oh great. man, you know I didn't, didn't, sorry, I didn't think much of Sandman's line though, where he's attack, you know, he's attacking on the submarine base, and he's just jumping at the guys, the the baddies, going, "I'm a Japanese Sandman in quotes. I'm a Japanese Sandman, putting you all to sleep. Why is he a Japanese Sandman? Yeah, what does that mean? <laughs> I mean." Yeah. Does that mean that... <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, if you read Neil Gaiman's Sandman, you realize that every culture views Morpheus in a different way. You know, they see him, you know, like a cat sees him <laughs> as a cat, or a Japanese person might see him as a samurai. I don't know how he'll show up in your dreams. <laughs> but the, the Japanese must have been thinking, this guy shows up as... And our Sandman is an American mystery man <laughs> dressed in tights. No way. It just doesn't work. So yeah, that's a weird line, Mark. You're right. That that doesn't make any. I couldn't find any connection there. So interesting. I mean, there is a you know. Uh, I think mm -hmm. uh, you know during my research of the issue, I found like um, there was an old uh, what was it like a video a play or something in Japan called the Japanese Sandman. I don't know if that has anything to do with it. It's like um, it's also a song by an orchestra. Uh, maybe oh. that I don't know if that has anything to do with it, but um, you know I couldn't That'd find any funny. connection. Roy, Roy must have had Dan do lots of research, and I'm sure you're spot on there, Herman. Honestly, maybe, maybe, yeah. Roy's got his research went all over the place, and uh, I think you know the 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 pre-internet yeah. days must have been tough. But yeah, some of the you know puns work, some of them don't. But I'll check out more on that. But I couldn't find a lot about it. You know that it doesn't have any bearing with what they're doing, you know, what, what the fight that he's having with the Japanese. It's just, you know, who would know, <laughs> except for the Sandman, what he's referring to. He probably listened to that, that piece of music just before he embarked to prep himself for beating up some Japs. <laughs> you have to be right, because given that in the caption, sorry, in the word balloon, he's had David Cody Wise, the letterer, put oh. it in single quotes. That You know, he is quoting, so, no, you're spot on, Herman, honestly. Mm, yeah, it might be that. It might really be that. Now, um, I mean, with the, the there's one, though, I do want to mention. I like the fact that the, the Spectre, even though this is an experimental uh, torpedo uh, that he's taking on, I like the fact that he's completely nonchalant about it, and he just thinks that, you know, why should he fear any experimental weapon made by mere mortals? <laughs> I, I, I love the disdain he feels. It's almost like the Spectre is sort of like God coming down to play a little bit and finding his playmates a little bit uh, low low in, in IQ. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, I but, don't know. But the, the best thing. Yeah. The, the best thing in that panel was sort of the secretary's note from Wonder Woman where she writes, <laughs> it is not known because the inventor we're told is Charles Reagan. She writes, 
it is not known if said inventor is any relation to movie actor Ronald Reagan. It's like, <laughs> stop it, Roy, stop it. <laughs> That's oh great. my god that that's like that's like saying every time you watch an indiana jones movie with harrison ford you think that he he's fighting the nazis you think that's weird because you know um uh you know the the ford company used to support the nazis in the 30s so why is harrison ford who's probably a relation mm -hmm. fighting the nazis <laughs> what, he wants to redeem <laughs> he wants to redeem the ford name or what <laughs> it's crazy it's crazy Ronald Reagan had just become a big star in King's Row, so perhaps she'd been ah. to see the movie with Steve With Steve Trevor. <laughs> mm -hmm. A big fan. Yeah. Roy, Roy just got Yeah, I think uh, Roy, you know, he. Um, I, I like the fact that he sort of tried to keep it uh, in, in the vein with, you know, what, what was happening in pop culture at the time uh, in 1942 when this was written. I mean, in previous issues, we've seen him referencing movies before you know spy thrillers and so forth that was very popular at the time because of the war so uh, you know i like the fact that he did his research but wonder woman making a note of it when she's recording <laughs> the adventure of the stone ludicrous <laughs> yeah yeah it's almost as if she she put a bit of a virginia wolf stream of consciousness writing sometimes into her note-taking <laughs> which would make it very I like that <laughs> Yeah, they've left, they've left her there back at camp to be bored, so she might as well have some fun. Yeah, well, why not? <laughs> just just got to entertain herself here, yeah. But Oh, man, that yeah, next page with the Atom. I love that one, too. Oof. Oof. I like, I Great like, page. I like the fact that he sort of Spider-Man style jumps through an open window and that, you know, <laughs> the, the, the scientist guy that we see working there is supposed to be, I mean, he's supposed to be Mori Fushida, the the um, Japanese-American that ends up helping him. But, I mean, he's he wears glasses, though, and he's working with, with chemicals, and he's got this evil look mm -hmm. on his face. So I was thinking, what is happening here? <laughs> is this guy supposed <laughs> to be evil, or is this just supposed to be fooling us, you know, um, into thinking that all Japanese-Americans are evil, and then he's proven wrong? I didn't know why they drew him like that. I didn't even realize it was meant to be the same person, but I see the wearing the same clothing apart from the glasses. So, gosh, that's weird. Because I just seen that was a mini half splash page of, you know, symbolizing him getting the scientist. But yes, that makes no sense. Yeah, I mean, uh, visually, for folks who didn't have access to Golden Age comics, you know, um, reading this in the eighties, mm -hmm. most of them probably didn't. Um, you know, except for the stalwart, the old guys who were also reading. And they probably criticized the hell out of Roy, <laughs> you know. So uh, you didn't see that a lot in the letter columns, though. But we don't know what letters weren't printed, right? So I'm pretty sure some old folks, you know, who who hated Roy playing in their sandbox, you know. But, you know, in this case, it definitely you kind of have to read the original issue to know what's going on here with the splash. I think they just inserted it to sort of uh, not copy a page from the All-Star number 12, but just to, to, to introduce the, the Atom specifically you know the story but it didn't work it definitely doesn't work and i i i hate half panel splash pages if it's on the left hand side and not above so you know that doesn't work for me but that's just a personal you know a preference really but i like the fact that you know uh, the original issue mark that you probably read right the all-star uh, comics 12 it had a lot of racism in it this is the section where uh, roy sort of tries to to deal with that issue and the adam proves himself a little bit 
not racist or bigoted, I'm saying, but, you know, because he was a soldier, too, at this point in time in the war, and he'd just been, you know, um, you know, I think discharged from the army, probably because of, you know, <laughs> they're messing up the, you know, the, 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 <laughs> the uh, chain of command there. <laughs> That's the reason given for disbanding them, right? Or not disbanding them, or for basically firing them from the army. Uh, he probably still has that whole gung-ho mentality of, you know, Pearl, uh, you know, remember Pearl Harbor. So when he first meets Mori Fushida, who's in fact, right, Billy, I don't know if you and Martin know this, but uh, Roy specifically named Mori Fushida um, after Mori Kuramoto, who used to be at Marvel. Right. Yeah. So mm -hmm. that's a nice... A letterer and production mm. guy. Yeah. That's right, yeah. Yeah, because in the original, the guy just have a name does he? he just gets you know in the original story yes. it's so bad you know, the young man refers to himself as a jap whereas here as you as we said he protests when when the atom calls him a jap and, and boy you know it's just this is this is so much better i mean roy eliminates a, a whole that whole vile racist sequence involving the atom in the original story and he said he gives Mori mm -hmm. a great part. And I would love Mori to become a continuing character to offset the general whiteness of the all-star squadron I mean, you have amazing man and that's it really isn't it yeah that's right i i would have i think mm -hmm. that's a missed opportunity there on roy's part i mean um they could have even had an insert where he accidentally bumped some chemicals and then later on gained superpowers you know even though that didn't happen in the golden <laughs> age why not roy's done other things you know to change continuity Absolutely. but also you know when they eventually did introduce uh japanese character tsunami in the pages of all-star squadron she was not well, well, she did have ties to the... She did have family in America, but she was raised in Japan mostly. So she sort of started off evil and then became good. And uh, I didn't like that. I thought they could have picked, a, like you said, Martin, a Japanese-American who could have been the All-Star Squadron member representing them and showing that they're not evil. Isn't that... I mean, who the, the government might not have allowed it, but at this point in time, the All-Star Squadron you know they've been assembled by churchill but they're not funded by him at all i don't think i mean he never mentioned the the the, mm. the, the funding aspect so they could probably go all avengers you know uh cap in avengers civil war and said you know we'll take whoever we want <laughs> you know and just they yeah. could have had a nice they, do, they, have, they have they have, a, they have an amazing amount they have a certain level of autonomy and i think roosevelt would have been you know i mean you, you see at the end of the issue that the regret with which he's signing he's signing the the uh, the law to put mm. thing in the internment, and I think he probably wasn't you know against Japanese Americans. He was just bowing to public pressure or whatever. I don't know. You probably know the history behind this better than I do. But mm. I think I think Roosevelt would have gone would have gone along with a, a native a native Japanese American person joining the team quite easily. I don't know. Maybe Roy had plans down the line and just never got to it. But as you say, Herman missed opportunity. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, uh, we can insert a little bit of an Earth Prime archive here, which is sort of uh, the prelude to the full segment later on in the issue. Uh, this is just to say that, uh, yes, President Roosevelt, he was, um, I think, a victim. At, not I think, this, is, this has been chronicled by some historians. He was a victim of fear mongering because, um, you know, at that point in time in the war, uh, there were reports and most of them were you know, either uh, fictitious or they were uh, attributed, they were, they were probably also German saboteurs uh, who perpetrated these acts and they were then blamed on Japanese because there was a small Japanese-American community near these places where sabotage had been committed. 
Um, and then there was no proof, but because of the whole anti-Japanese sentiment at the time, fear-mongering and, and so forth. So, you know, you can't really, I mean, you definitely can't blame uh, the, the entire cabinet at the time, the government at the time for, for this bill. But Roosevelt was the one who eventually signed the document. He was not the one who drafted it, though. And because of, you know, uh, he was also, uh, his health was not good at the time. He felt like, you know, he had to make decisions quickly. And, uh, you know, he wasn't always, because he was overworked, overtired, um, you know, and his, his, his condition being what it was, he sometimes, you know, could not be counted on to, to take the time to think over a matter during war. You know, you kind of have to make quick decisions all the time during a war. And since sabotage was happening, and, you know, this might have been, you know, uh, like a possibility. So they, they just acted upon it. So Roosevelt did sign it with deep regret, um, as, you know, attested to by his aides, because he was a humanitarian, uh, to an extent, of course. You know, um, uh, he could have championed civil rights more, as most of historical figures could have done. They could, could always have done more, if you know what I mean. But um, he was not uh, like his, his opponents, you know, were, who were total racists or... Or, or reprehensible bigots. So yes, you're right, Martin, he was uh, reluctant. And then he felt like he was, you know, it was the only recourse at the time to deal with what, you know, to ensure the safety of the country. Of, of course, the repercussions were much greater than he considered at the time, because like I say, he didn't have enough time to fully consider the consequences. So that's it for us. Oh, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. So, guys, let's speak about the section, section a bit more. I kind of dig the action in here because, you know, when you're getting an Adam story, you're going to get a lot of fisticuffs and some hand-to-hand -hand fighting, and I love that. Mm. And, and they take on the Black Dragons here, uh, which left me wondering, how could these guys have funded a Bloodsport tournament? Because they're so terrible <laughs> at hand-to-hand -hand fighting. But um, Yeah, they should have brought in some of the fighters from the Kumite to be security. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. But, you know, they that's, that's uh, something that they uh, probably regret now. And um, then, you know, this device that seems to be a, sort of a portable atom bomb that resembles, uh, you know, uh, uh, what a, uh, what, what's the word, for a magic sphere or something? A crystal ball. <laughs> crystal ball, maybe, or something. Yeah, what is this thing supposed to be? <laughs> It's a, it's a, a globular terrarium or something. I don't know. Yeah. Very odd. Because the, the, the funny thing is they say that a, a grain of it could destroy a battleship. So, I mean, if, if, if a grain of it could do that, why, you know, uh, sort of uh, condense it into the sphere? Uh, it, wouldn't that make it difficult to... Oh, they probably wanted to use the entire thing and blow up the, uh, the United States. <laughs> I guess that that's probably why. But... Um, yeah. Uh, Mori Kuramoto... Uh, oh, what am I saying? Mori Fushida. <laughs> <laughs> Mori Fushida saves the day by actually catching, and I, I'm glad Roy put that in there. He's, I mean, he probably saved the entire, you know, continent, <laughs> if you think about it. Because uh, the Black good. Dragon, yeah, he was dropping it, and then he caught it. So, pretty... How about that? That was on 15 as well. Oof, yeah, that is a good one, yeah. That it's sort of the panel mm -hmm. layout is very unique. It's like a sun, you know, uh, with with sun. Mm -hmm. mm. Oh, beautiful, beautiful. And I love the fact that the atom. He 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 said he says or or was it uh, Mori who said that their headquarters is in a restaurant 
the Black Dragon Society's headquarters with a black dragon as the logo. And nobody would even look twice because this is, you know, there's lots of Chinatowns and lots of uh, Tokyo towns around that has black dragons all over the place. (laughs) (laughs) Very cheeky. Yeah, very cheeky. Uh, Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, that's a great panel layout, though. I must agree on page 15. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's incredible. Love it. The atom leaping over that little, what looks to be a VW bug, but it isn't, of course. <laughs> you know, that, that is just the atom showing off. Come on, Al. <laughs> it is a little short guy syndrome. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, he does. Napoleon syndrome. One of the cruise ships, the cruise line I'm on most of the time, advertisement, Norwegian Cruise Line, NCO, which are excellent. But mm. uh, we've been on a few of their ships, and there's one of their ships, I think it was the Norwegian Spirit that we went on, which was originally made for the, the Far Eastern market. Mm. And the, the actual specs of the ship, the corridors and things, are, and the rooms, they're a, little, they're a couple of inches shorter. And it just <laughs> it just seems so unnecessary. It just seems, you know, the ship that was racist. It's just terrible. <laughs> Yeah. Jeez, why? I mean, even if, you know, <laughs> short people Crazy. do take the cruise, I mean, why not just make it, uh, you know, as tall for, for anybody, you know, as, as uh, you know, height that would require people from different sizes. It's just, yeah, it's very easy. Uh, it's it's just crazy, yeah. But it's interesting that you mentioned that mm-hmm. because I think that's one of the reasons why the atom might feel a little bit uh, <laughs> dejected. But, you know, he should you let go of that stereotype because... He's proven wrong here. Maury is much as much as Johnny Thunder wraps up the issue uh, nicely in his little bow tie in a bow. Uh, Maury <laughs> does so here with his fists, right, <clears throat> and with his uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, his his, his his save there of this uh, device. Uh, so I, I love the fact that Roy did that. Well done, Roy there. And then you know the Johnny Thunder bit. I, I don't know if you guys want to go first speak on this. I found this to be you know um, kind of fun. You know, even though Johnny Thunder is, and it seems like the Spectre found it to be fun too, because instead of just like like the JSA members' comments on, he's he's got the power to just disappear all of these black dragons. He sort of leaves them for the rest of the JSA, as if he knows the boys wants to have their fun. <laughs> and Wonder Woman sort of, she's <laughs> of the same mind. What do you guys think? <laughs> well, I, I I yeah, I, I love I love this. It was just very nice to read something. A little, a little bit lighter after the, you know, the, the necessary serious, seriousness of the previous chapter, and I think this is just Roy showing that he could have wrote an excellent backup strip for Johnny Thunder in the in the modern, well, the modern age, the Bronze Age, because, you know, the, Johnny's not too irritating, and Thunderbolt, he comes out with this spiel constantly in his history about how he's got to follow the exact orders Johnny says, and then. You know, about four panels after saying that, he completely bends the rules to bring the JSA in. It's like he's just he's just having a laugh, really. He's just amusing himself from his little genie dimension. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I find this just quite delightful. Yeah, I, mm. I, I love the, you know, the dialogue here, too. I mean, when, you know, Johnny first appears in the midst of the Black Dragon Society, it seems like an accident because he, sometimes his wishes are interpreted literally by the thunderbolt mm-hmm. right and um so he he wished for the thunderbolt presumably to take him to the black dragon society leader and then you know he was apparated right into the room in in all of them and then one of the black dragons say kill him and that pink thing with him <laughs> and we shall worry about nationalities later 
That's <laughs> weird. It's oh. just, oh, I well, love it. I love how it, the whole page starts out with Wonder Woman. Yet, as so often seems to happen in the Justice Society's adventures, the man who discovered the central headquarters of the Black Dragons on the West Coast was none other than its least intellectual member, Johnny Thunder. <laughs> Just, oh, that's gosh. harsh. That's oh, yeah, terrible. She's, harsh. she's tough, man. <laughs> you, you can actually think someone with the wisdom of Athena would be you know, a little more sympathetic <laughs> to people who don't have that birth blessing. <laughs> no, apparently not, huh? <laughs> yeah, you'd think that someone from uh, Paradise Island would look down on all men, but actually she never did. You know, so her saying this is weird. It's just strange. <laughs> But uh, maybe Johnny Thunder's done something, put a whoopee cushion under her seat once too often. I don't know what he's done to her to to earn <laughs> Diana's ire here. But but it does seem that Johnny Thunder sort of stumbles into or, or he lucks into, you know, um, solving cases most of the time. Whereas the rest of the guys, Garner Fox style, they have to use their sleuthing skills, their detective skills. Johnny sort of like bumbles around and then, you know, comes out roses. It's super bumbling. Yes, he controls a genie, but he's very, very lucky, you know, in mm. the, the things that happens, the decisions he makes, or what you know, what he happens to fall into. He's he's a bit he's again back to the bow tie business. He's a bit like Jimmy Olsen, you know. Yeah, I'd say the the Silver Age Jimmy Olsen definitely. You know, he he is is very you know similar, and also a little bit of the modern age too. Although I think you know guys like Matt Fraction in the recent Jimmy Olsen series. I don't know if you guys read that. He sort of um, oh yeah that's that's a pretty good uh, you know run of Jimmy Olsen issues there. And then uh, Jimmy Olsen is shown to be amazingly resourceful because he takes the premise that you know you kind of have to be if you hanging out with Superman and dealing with these super threats all the time. You, you have to be something special. And Jimmy is. He's very, you know, resourceful when it comes to dealing with this kind of stuff. I like that interpretation of Jimmy. But I'm not a fan of Jimmy, per se, you know, the Silver Age Jimmy. But um, I guess you could change a character. And if they can do that to Johnny Thunder, uh, I, I think they would take something away from the character, really, rather than add something to him. Because, after all, that that's the kind of thing Golden Age readers expected from Johnny Thunder. He's kind of like Plastic Man in a sense, you know, there has to be this comedy element. Otherwise it doesn't work, right? And uh, Johnny Thunder's comedy element is the fact that he's bumbling, he's oafish. I just <laughs> personally don't like that kind of character. That's the that's the, uh, the only thing. But, you know, I can understand, Mart, that you say that that's, you know, you should kind of like uh, look at him as, you know, playing a role. You know, he's like the team, the funny man in the team, the uh, the, mm -hmm. the the one that's that that needs to inject the humor into the tale. So you know, I can I can get aboard with that. It really is. I, I think it's unfair unfair to you know to equate him too much with Snapper Car because Snapper Car he was there at the beginning and the end of the story with his hip dialogue snapping his fingers. <laughs> but Johnny would get in, you know, properly involved in all the adventures. As I say, he was actually extremely useful. Yeah, no, true, true, true. I mean, he wasn't uh, mm -hmm. relegated to mascot status. <laughs> he was, <laughs> yeah, he was his own man and uh, his own character in the Golden Age. I can respect that. I just, you know, I think uh, later stories ruined him for me, you know, especially in the 80s, uh, you know, when, when he became a bitter old man in some tales. Uh, but, um, you know, the fight, though, that they have, which is great, once they, Johnny Thunder <laughs> sort of rescued by the JSA here, 
but it's really mm-hmm. his own doing because uh, he sent the T-bolt away to save the scientist, um, and he did. And then uh, the Black Dragon said, if you don't recall, the T-bolt will execute you. And that's a, a fun line too. Uh, earlier in the tale when Hawkman says, you're just going to kill me, and the Black Dragon says, no, 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 we don't kill, we execute. <laughs> right? So <laughs> what's the difference? Now here it's, great. it's kind of the same. They're going to execute him, but this time it's sort of like sacrificial kind of uh, style execution here. Uh, yeah. And then the T-Bolt shows up to check in on Johnny and Johnny doesn't know he's around, so the T-Bolt can't do anything. He has to wait around for a wish. I love that part. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then Johnny yeah. accidentally wishes for you know the JSA to show up. Maybe they <laughs> finally appreciate me a little. <laughs> Great. <laughs> yeah. and it could be maybe Wonder Woman did get the call from Thunderbolt because she doesn't like Johnny Thunder. She never bothered. <laughs> could be. <laughs> that makes so much sense. We already know she doesn't like him because she insulted him right there in in the, in the, mm-hmm. the minutes of the meeting or the the, the the notebook, the journal. So yeah, that must oh, yeah. be the reason she didn't answer the call. And then, uh, you know, um, a bit of a fight montage, right? What do you guys think about that? I like that. That's very golden agey and full of zingers. (laughs) Mm. Oh, Batman fantastic. Yeah, I love it. Wonk, bam, up. (laughs) The the sound effects (laughs) is great. (laughs) And then, you know, Hawkman bumps two heads together. Heads, I win. (laughs) Who said you were playing paper, scissors, stone there? Nobody... (laughs) You know, anyway. It's Richard Howell's drawing this one, isn't it, I think? Yeah, this is Richard Howell's segment, yeah, definitely. And um, yeah. this a couple of years before he did, Shadow, did the Hawkman book, wasn't it? So it's nice to see him drawing the other Hawkman now, so well. Yeah, Martin, you mentioned that the Shadow War of the Hawkman. Me personally, Billy, I don't know about you, I never read that. And I was, it was with deep regret because I remember seeing house ads for it. And I never found it on the spinner racks as a kid. Billy, did you read Shadow War uh, of the Hawkman? No, I have not. I'll have to check and see if it's on the app, though. I wouldn't mind reading it. Yeah, it's, so. too, it's too. Search it out. And the, the series that followed, which can you know, it went for a couple of years, also by Tony Isabella and I think Richard Howell, because you know, it's you have Hawkman, Hawk Girl, if the traditional mm. villains, high for Dr. Anne, Mavis Trent, the bitchy one. It's excellent. (laughs) Now, Martin, I remember I had one Hawkman comic in the 80s. Uh, I don't know if it was of the Shadow War of the Hawkman, but it was where it seemingly Shira died. She was disintegrated. Is that part of that run? Or or, or am I mistaken here? Yes, I've read it, but I think it would have been because in the, in the eighties that was pretty much the only series they had. They had the mini series, then mm. the ongoing that went after it. And then, you know, obviously, I think it was at the end of the eighties or the early nineties. You had that stupid makeover when they were all wearing not wings on their back but big dustbin oh. covers or something. <laughs> yeah, I remember <laughs> that. I remember that. <laughs> oh my goodness! Yeah, no, no, I've I've got to track those down and uh, we've included that feedback in, you know, the previous episode, which you would have listened to by now if well, this is weird dealing with time, you know, when you're recording in the previous uh, yep. episode. I mean okay, as of this, we're pulling our Roy. <laughs> that's right, we're pulling our Roy here. So we're we're gonna track that down. We're gonna have to hunt down the Shadow or the Hawkman. Because I'm I like Richard Howell's penciling, definitely. And in this page, you know, it's it's pretty good. 
uh, lots of action, mm-hmm. uh, lots of fluid dynamism here. And you've got the uh, probably the best line delivered by, um, I would say, uh, Doctor Midnight. But it's not because it's a <laughs> it's a funny line. I just like it, you know, that he's still in his Doctor mode. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, what does oh, he yeah. say, Billy? You want to read that for us? Yeah, he says prognosis, loss of sight due to blackout bomb, and then he punches the guy out and he says loss of consciousness due to fist (laughs) (laughs) it's very (laughs) dragon but no that's the winner (laughs) yeah that's right and then you've got a little bit of uh you know uh johnny um thunder moment there where he he, uh, the specter lets him go so that he can get in on the action and he tackles the leader of the black dragon society and then he punches him out and he says, um, you're going to get the point, my point, right on your chinny chin chin. And the Thunderbolt says, that's my master, full of literary allusions. <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> it's a pretty, Honestly, pretty... Herman, just charming as hell. <laughs> <laughs> I got to reassess. <laughs> no okay this issue i mean seeing it through your eyes mark you know i might have to reassess my whole you know hatred of johnny thunder here earlier in the in the uh you know episode i described him as a cancerous growth now i might have to just you know um <laughs> change that to maybe just a small you know flesh wound <laughs> that could be infected <laughs> could become infected later <laughs> Oh, man. No, it's great. I love the fact that, you know, Wonder Woman, she has this, um, when she finishes, you know, the tale written down in the journal, she has this whimsical look on her face like, ah, nostalgia and, uh, you know, another adventure (laughs) chronicled by the secretary. (laughs) I think in in my panel, I have her that she's looking bored and quietly resentful that she was sidelined. But Mm. yeah, I can see your interpretation as well. I, I, it's like it's kind of like um, you know she chronicles their adventurers, so she's got the power you know to kind of say whatever she wants. <laughs> I mean that's uh-huh. like the Churchill quote we had in the previous episode. Billy, you know what I'm talking about. Marge, you still have to listen to that episode. <laughs> um, Churchill <laughs> says, you know, uh, history will be kind to me for I intend to write it. This is kind of Wonder Woman says I could <laughs> I've I've got these boys in the palm of my hand because after all, what will be remembered? It will be you know what I wrote down of them. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm going to be generous. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's appalling. They've all had these individual adventures. Then they've all come together. She wasn't at any of them. They could all have written down their own adventure. But, you know, they obviously, you know, she's had to sit down, talk to them, listen, write it all back at super speed or whatever. But still, it's, it's a tremendous waste of her time. I can't, I can't get over that. I'm bitter for her. Yeah, it's 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 really uh, atrocious, you know, uh, what they did to Wonder Woman. But you know, Roy tries his best to redeem it, but I think he could have tried harder too. But you know, I I you know we had that fantastic Wonder Woman storyline, you know, um, uh, in in the early uh, when was it? Just before the twenties, where you know she dealt with one of her old villains, and I sort of Roy put her at the forefront there. So I'm I'm very happy about what he did with Wonder Woman here. I wish that he would just keep doing that, continue because Wonder Woman is one of my favorite female superhero characters. Um, and you know, seeing her relegated to this position again after he sort of tried to fix that, it's it's kind of kind of jarring. But um, uh, yeah, she would show up again later on uh, in more action oriented roles. So I kind mm-hmm. of it's I'm okay with it, but you know if I was reading this at the time, I would definitely have seen this as a step back. Or what do you guys think? 
with mm, yeah Isaac. i can see that yeah maybe not i mean she she proves that she's she's better than any you know anyone not just any secretary but any man at uh, riding <laughs> you know and at uh, speed <laughs> and, so that counts in her favor but yeah no, I mean, I mean, we, I mean, we all know. All the readers knew that this is that that was her role in the original comics. But if you're going to put her in there, and you're going to be changing little things anyway, like you know, all, all the pretty much all the details of the Atoms encounter with the Black Dragon Society in Chinatown, and just find something, some other way to use Wonder Woman, you know, or, or come up with something like the Spear of Destiny that, you know, says she can't go on adventures. I don't know. <laughs> just do better. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I agree. Don't just make it as a cultural or a, you know, a sort of tradition of the time to let women serve in these roles. Yeah, I know it, exactly what you mean. But, you know, I like the fact that, you know, Belle is in the leadership role. So uh, women are definitely at the forefront here. Yeah. And, you know, in an Earth Prime archive we did on an earlier episode where we focused on how essential women were to the war. Um, you know, uh, that that is true as well. But here we see Wonder Woman sort of trumping Liberty Bell at the end here, where Bell is not worried at all what, you, you know, it could mean for Japanese Americans, um, you know, the state of, of affairs at this time. Whereas Wonder Woman is the prescient one. She's the one that, <clears throat> you know, with the wisdom of Athena and obviously her coming to man's world to champion humanity, not just males, she and not just one race she's the one who sort of uh casts doubt on the american system at the moment that it's not infallible even though it's standing up against tyranny it, it still makes mistakes and i love the fact that that she's the one you know who kind of has to to bring that to light in this issue <clears throat> yeah good point but then disappointing yeah I mean, she's meant to be a hotshot journalist, and she should Libby should be. No, honestly, you know, yeah. she should really know better. This it's just mm. terrible. I mean, I don't, you know, you've got two people on the scene. Boy wants to show two points of view, but no, no. I, yeah, I don't. I don't know what was it. that lessens Libby's character for me. It does a little bit. And, you know, it's still, it's kind of like what they did to Firebrand as well, that they have this leftover resentment for the enemy. Of course they would have. It's 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 completely believable. But the fact that they still let that color, you know, their, um, you know, opinions on other policies, like, for instance, the whole Japanese-American question. You know, uh, now I'm not saying it directly does that, but it kind of seems to be like that because um, when we get into Bell's origin, you you guys might remember in a later issue of All Star Squadron, but we already know a little bit about her origin. Her father died, right, uh, as a result of the Nazis, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and so, yeah, I think you know, so. Yeah, so she's got this she, she's got this burden she's carrying with her that she's got this hatred of the enemy causing a death of a loved one, and that's the same with Firebrand, her brother being injured. In, at Pearl Harbor and um, now I'm not saying Roy did this consciously but that's still a, a leftover of the earlier Bell from earlier issues and from the earlier Firebrand although that will be completely erased later on and but this definitely feels like Bell is sort of sort of she she refuses to deal with this issue almost um, by saying that no we should trust in the government <laughs> trust in FDR and here we see him making a mistake on the very next page um, which which is uh, intentionally, of course, by Roy. Um, so, guys, can I launch into our final Earth Prime Archive segment? Just a sure. little bit. 
<clears throat> yeah, just a little bit of uh, detail here concerning, you know, the Japanese American internment program here. Now, I already mentioned the reasons behind it, the fear of sabotage and spying and, of course, uh, you know, Roosevelt being incited to do this by, you know, these, the, the, the senators and the congressmen uh, who all offered up proof, which, which was later turned out to be fallacious. It wasn't actually pointing towards these uh, Japanese Americans at all. But, but he signed the order and it was, uh, you know, obviously uh, taken on uh, March 1929, 1942. It took effect. And um, then uh, what happened was they, at first, only along the coastline, the Pacific coast, uh, communities of Japanese Americans were interned into camps, you know, from those regions. But it soon became uh, more widespread. And uh, these relocation cen uh, centers were often compared to Nazi uh, relocation camps, but that was also shown to be, you know, inaccurate. Um, that was obviously just to drum up support. Um, the, the, the horror came from these Japanese Americans l losing their, their obviously their, their civil rights, but also their property and businesses, because in many cases, the entire family were interred and then they couldn't make any arrangements for their property and so forth. So the government literally just seized it. And then if they didn't make any arrangements, legal arrangements with lawyers before they were interred, those properties were, were forfeit. Which is which is quite terrible if you think about it, and um, wow. uh, life in the internment camps was was not terrible. You know they they received adequate medical treatment, food, and so forth. But um, what was terrible was they they were completely ignored. Like for instance, there were a couple of uh, uh, many, in fact, Japanese Americans who were lawyers who tried to make a legal case against the government, and they had the, the they had the full rights to do that, of course as American citizens, but they were completely and utterly ignored and uh, they weren't allowed to make these legal, you know, um, uh, the, have these legal questions that, that should have been taken up by the courts that was completely just swept away, which was which is a gross injustice, if you think about it. But the United States tried to, to uh, make reparations uh, in 1988. Congress uh, signed by President Reagan, in fact, who was mentioned in this issue. I wonder if that was intentional. <laughs> hmm, I wonder now. No, no, this issue was obviously written before 1988. Before that. Yeah, yeah. so it wasn't. Um, he signed uh, public law uh, uh, number 10383, the Civil Liberties Act of 1988, as it was known, that acknowledged the injustice of the internment, and then it provided $20,000 cash payment to each person who was still alive who was interred, and to the families of those, uh, if they had passed away, to their descendants, $20,000 each. Uh, now, that that's actually not a lot if you think about what they suffered back then. Some folks lost their entire livelihood and their, their businesses that they've been building up for, for dozens of years at that point in time. But it was something... And, um, you know, uh, the irony of this is that, you know, the American Civil Liberties was, in fact, articulated by an internee who, uh, when he was told that the Japanese were put into those camps for their own protection, he said, if we were put there for our own protection, because that was the, the line they were spewing at the time, remember, guys, they said, no, in most cases, they were put there for their own protection, you know, from the public who were now anti-Japanese and also, you know, obviously mm -hmm. from, from being prosecuted and so forth. But that was the lie. He said, this internee said, yeah. if we were put in the camps for our own protection, why were the guns on the guard towers always pointing inward? 
So oh, that's, that's... God, Lord. So I, I, it's, I'm just aghast. It's just, and you know, I, I can't take the high ground as a Brit because we were locking up Italians, and I think Austrians and Germans as well over here, and you know, taking away their livelihoods and lives. And I, I, I think the politicians they, sh- they should have been better than that. They should have been leading rather than coming out with rubbish excuses non-justifications about we're protecting you from people because as as you've just demonstrated with that, that quote it's just obviously transparently a lie it's just if you're going to lock people up at least have the guts to, to say why you're doing it mm, exactly exactly yeah that that's the the greatest injustice i think the fact that even though mm. they were yeah. considered the we the west was considered the good guys here well some parts of the west of course and the, the americans particularly the president still had to and and the people who drafted this uh this um uh, law they still or this 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 bill they still had to lie about it in order to make them seem you know uh, on the on the side of justice and so, yeah, that happens all the time. So really, really a tragedy, really. So that's why I think Roy put this on the, you know, right after Liberty Bell sort of touted the, the you know, the, the greatness of their government. He put it on the very last page right after Liberty Bell, you know, assured Wonder Woman that she doesn't have to worry to show that here is one of the biggest mistakes that FDR, in fact, made. Um, so uh, terrible, right? And then people like Ben Oda, who I think, Mark, yeah. you pointed out in yeah. the past, um, uh, Japanese-Americans, much like, you know, uh, uh, Jack Kirby and Joe Simon at the time, uh, uh, who were, you know, obviously not Japanese-Americans, but, you know, they were working together. Ben Oda was also a World War II veteran. He was a Japanese-American. He fought in World War II. There were mm-hmm. thousands of Japanese-Americans. In fact, they had a regiment which I think was called the 42nd Regiment, who were uh, completely consisted of Japanese Amer- Americans. Sorry, it's the 442nd Regimental Combat Team. And, um, you know, they were incredibly effective, you know, because they felt yeah. they had something to prove. So they were they were ideal soldiers because they were Americans and they felt that now their, their, their loyalty was called into question. So they performed amazingly on the battlefield. And, uh, you know, sort of all these heroic tales coming out of history... So pretty I sad. Mm. I mean, I would have probably gone the other way. I'd just been so so bitter. I would have just wanted to turn the guns on the. No, I, not that's been over dramatic, but it's just amazing. So that just shows that that amazing spirit that they would just you know find find a way of putting their energies into the goodness there, rather than sort of you know just protesting and being bitter at what's happened to their families while they've got their freedom. That they've just gone out there and you know showed again why the government was just so wrong to lock up the the Japanese Americans. Mm -hmm. Exactly. For sure. Exactly. But, um, you know, let's not uh, let the whole history color this comic because I think Roy dealt with it uh, very well. And uh, I Mm -hmm. commend him again for for dealing with these issues. Um, And so think about all the kids who read this at the time who wasn't aware of this act, you know, who read this comic. And Roy made them aware of that. So the All-Star Squadron issues really... It it re- uh, for me personally, it did really make me aware of this the the historical context more than I, I wasn't aware of it at the time. So you know, there's a second element to to the All Star Squadron comics that we should take you know um, into you know we should take it to heart because Roy really did something special here for for many readers I think who weren't aware of these these issues of social injustice. So you know, um, absolutely. 
I say, I mean, there's some mighty fine riding through the issue, but that that final panel where he's, he's writing about, you know, about, you know, the day that would live in infamy. It's just absolutely some of his best writing, and I mean, the whole page after after the Liberty Bell is a is a beat. I can see this at the end of a TV program. It's just being a really powerful ending to a show, but you know, that's not to say the comics are inferior to TV because it rereading this the other you know a couple of times for the show here just really hit me in my heart it's just so powerful i mean well done roy and all the creative team yeah it's true it's it's mm-hmm. ironic too that uh, you know the liberty bell in this case rings a little hollow you know a, ch- a, a character. Oh. yeah <laughs> you know because that's her name and <laughs> there's no liberty here found at the very end of the issue which is sad but you know um well done, Roy, and the entire creative team, like you guys mentioned. Now, um, that brings us to the end of the comic. But, Martin, hopefully this is not the end of your guest appearance. Uh, Billy and I want to lock you down for another one uh, later on, and I hope you will consent to come back because this was a heck of a lot of fun. <laughs> you know, Absolutely. I would be delighted. Thank you. It's been such a lovely, lovely pleasure chatting to you too. Oh, yeah, the, definitely the same. I've been wanting to talk for you, to you for oh, a while. Yeah. I mean, Billy and I have been fans of yours for a long time, reading your blog and so forth, but also listening to you on other shows. And you always bring some fantastic comments to the slate. And now, finally, we've got you on a recording that we can also tout as now we've got Martin Gray here. <laughs> you know, that gives us some street cred. <laughs> <laughs> we are his document for Roy in the future. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So definitely, we'll we'll definitely uh, have you back, Martin. But before we let you go, though, I want you to quickly tell the listeners where, for those who don't know already, where can they find you on the interwebs, and what have you been up to lately? Well, on the interwebs, I have a blog, one of the holdouts still, called "Too Dangerous for a Girl," named after a famous legion of superheroes. Quote: "I'm not really a sexist. Well, if I am, I'm hiding." <laughs> <laughs> and I do a few reviews DC, Mini, Marvel I think I might do an Archie comic this week just as a palette cleanser and I'm on Twitter at, at Mark Gray and I pop up on the occasional podcast when I'm very lucky and I'm in the comment sections all over the place but just I'm just always there irritating probably <laughs> Awesome, Martin. Awesome. Now, listen, I want to ask Billy something, Martin. Now, we're probably going to read your wonderful feedback that you again sent for this episode on another episode. It would be awkward reading your feedback while we're having you on. Um, <laughs> but, Billy, have we got any... Never have that guy again. <laughs> it, it would be very yeah. meta. <laughs> But um, Billy, do we have any feedback mm-hmm. uh, for uh, for uh, the last episode that you want to get to, other than Martin's, uh, you know, um, feedback that you want to mention? We did not get any other emails. No, we did not. I think we got lots of Twitter comments and so forth. But we'll get oh, to that. Oh, always. always. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's always a pleasure, you know, uh, Martin, Stephen, and all those guys that are always uh, commenting. You know, our buddy Sean Ross too. He's always good with the likes and retweets, and you know, saying good job too. So thank you, everybody. And don't forget, last but last not least, Martin, you'll get a kick out of this one fan of of ours. Uh, the only cap, the only American Captain Britain fan. <laughs> 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 yes, it was me. 
I want to give a shout out to him mm-hmm. because he uh, retweeted, tweet commented on our previous episode saying that uh, this is uh, one of uh, the best podcasts and he's listening to it now now that he's caught up with his reading. So I want to give a shout out to to um, to him. And uh, that's the comments we had for this episode. But, you know, we'll be back, right, Billy? And Martin will guest again. Mm-hmm. So this is not the end um, with uh, a storyline that I think most of us is, are looking forward to. And that is, of course, Roy's... Um, much touted explanation of where has the hour man been and that's going to come up on a future episode but Mm -hmm. until then we're going to say goodbye we'll leave you with a bit of a message listeners Uh, you know stay away from conflict you know if there is any conflict deal with it creatively through art through writing like Roy and Mike and Jerry and uh, in this case Richard (laughs) also did and uh, then you (laughs) should that will be cathartic enough so Stay away from that and then listen to the Wolfcast or like some folks like to say it, the Azcast. <laughs> and then we'll be here for you. <laughs> you'll good. be here for us. <laughs> so uh, that, with that, that's bye from me. Goodbye from me too. Take care, everybody. You don't understand. In the war, I lost my first family. My son, daughter, and wife. They live in Hiroshima. I left Japan because of the war. The war was wrong. I came here to start over. Begin a new family, have a son, another chance to pass on the teaching. For 2,000 years, knowledge passed from father to son, father to son. Teach me, I can do it. Welcome, warriors of the world. Today, you become part of a tradition that began hundreds of years ago. The Kumite was first used by the Korukai, the Black Dragon Society, to measure the fighting skills and spirit of its members. Every five years, the best fighters in its ranks would face each other in full contact with one winner emerging as the superior warrior, the champion. That's why they call this thing Bloodsport Kid.